Hello, everybody, and welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. My name is Brian Gigantino. First and foremost, I want to give a huge and heartfelt thank you to our patrons. For those who have committed to donating $5 or even $10 a month, you are helping make this project not only a reality, but one step closer to actualizing our vision. For those who have the means, please visit patreon.com slash reimaginingsovietgeorgia and consider becoming a monthly patron. Every single cent counts in helping us maintain the project and expand the scope of what we do. I'd also like to give a big shout out to our listeners. Every single episode that we've had and released up to this point has seen an increase in listenership. This is really exciting for us and we promise that there's more to come. Thank you so much for listening. And for any, if anybody has any comments, questions, or suggestions, please feel free to email us at reimaginingsovietgeorgia at gmail.com, like our page on Facebook, or join our Facebook group. Here at Reimagining Soviet Georgia, we routinely like to ask, what are the social, political, and economic dynamics that shape how local researchers, historians, activists, and journalists produce ideas? This is because ideas are not abstract, but instead emerge from particular contexts. In Georgia, the dominance of a narrow national idea factors into almost all political questions, ideas, or calculations. One central pillar of this national idea is the Russia question. While ideas regarding Russia have a long and nuanced history in Georgian political society, after the 2008 Russo-Georgian War, a particular understanding of Russia within a concrete ge geopolitical and historical context became politically reified in the Georgian national consciousness. For Georgians themselves to question this amounted to something like treason. This has affected the space needed to ask critical questions not only about the future of Georgian-Russian relations, but about Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Georgia's place in the world. For those who may have opinions that diverge from the national narrative, there are often institutional and political difficulties that face them that amount to being excluded from the bounds of what is considered legitimate discourse. Yet at the same time, a rhetoric claiming a commitment to Western values such as freedom of speech, speech, are instrumentalized by political elites, NGOs, academics, and pundits in order to claim that a democratic space for critical discourse in Georgia exists. 
But in order to better and more lucidly address the question of Russia-Georgian relations requires opening up more intellectual space for critical conversations that may or may not question the national narrative. But doing so at this juncture seems almost impossible. To discuss these issues and more, on today's episode, I interview Tbilisi-based lecturer and researcher on securitization, Russia studies, and Caucasian studies, Archul Sikharulidze. I'd also like to apologize that you'll notice through the episode there's a little bit of background noise. There was some construction going on, and, well, sometimes you'll hear a chainsaw. But don't mind it. The conversation's interesting. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Archul Sikharulidze to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Uh, Archul, so tell us a little bit about your background. Who are you and what do you do? Hi, thanks for having me today. My, well, as you said, my name is Archul Sikharulidze and I am a lecturer at Tbilisi State University, the leading public university in Georgia. Also, I'm an analyst at Norwegian Helsinki Committee where I do analyze the human rights issues during the, the First and the Second Chechen Wars. Also, I do write articles about the history, about political analysis, about sociology, and about the political aspect of Muslim community in Georgia. And also, I'm a PhD student at Georgian Institute of Public Affairs. Well, if we go back you know, into retrospective, I was born in Tbilisi in 1988. My mom was from Tsinvali region, and I grew up partially in Tsinvali. My grandmother, she is from North Ossetia, so I grew up also in Vladikovkaz, so I perfectly know the situation in South Ossetia, in Skinvali region, as we call it, Georgia, in, in North Ossetia, and also I know, I know on the speaking level Ossetian language. So currently I am working, writing articles, collaborating with Friedrich Ebert Stiftung Armenia, with MGIMO, Moscow State, University of International Relations, and we're working on uh, memory identity. How uh, in Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan people do reconstruct the history. So what is it about your identity that is, you know, half Ossetian, uh, half Georgian, but not just identity, your experience spending time in Ossetia, Vladikavkaz and in Georgia, you know, how does that affect your research and what you write about and what you know, well, what you can see about the situation there? Well, uh, I, I always say that as a citizen of Georgia, I feel myself as a Georgian, but I always remember that I have Ossetian. I think the problem here is that when I, when I was a small child, I never, I, I, I never felt that I was uh, not non-Georgian in Georgia. I, I, I think I need to Thanks my father for that. But in Ossetia, when I was in Ladikovkaz or in Haya Fiagdon, Verkhny Fiagdon, this is a village in the mountainous part of North Ossetia, they always asked me whether I am a Georgian or Ossetian. So I always felt this in, in, in Ossetia. They always asked me, Gurjak da. Gurjak means like in certain Georgia da you. It means like, are you Georgian? And I used to say that I am half Georgian, half Ossetian. Ossetian, so because of that, I always felt in North Ossetia, I always felt that I was not uh, fully Ossetian, 
I was uh, half Georgian because my father was Georgian. So probably because of that, I more feel myself as a Georgian rather than as a Ossetian. But it definitely affects myself because I remember this. I remember the destroyed streets of Tsukhinvali region. I remember myself in my childhood walking in the, in the city center and there was no light, no heating, destroyed buildings uh, and poverty and attitudes. I mean, after the first war and it was uh, mid late 90s, then I, because uh, I was moved by my mom to Moscow in 1997 and then I came back in 2002, so I spent in Moscow five years, but before that, in late, in mid and late 90s, I was in Tsukhinvali all over again in summertime, and I have plenty of relatives there, and that's why every time when I hear about South Ossetia or about Tsukhinvali region, how we call it, I always remember my childhood, I always remember that people there were angry. What do you think are some of the biggest misunderstandings or misconceptions in Georgia today about South Ossetia, about Ossetians, and about the experience of the war? I think the biggest problem here is that, that Georgians don't understand Ossetians as a small nation, or we can't call it small community. I don't want to disturb my Georgian colleagues when they call Ossetians nation, especially South Ossetians. And I don't want to insult South Ossetians when I speak about South Ossetians, but let's call it community, okay? Uh, people in, in Tsukhinvali region, they do not uh, live every day expecting that Georgians will come, reintegrate them, and bring to European future. That is, what, that, that is the biggest misconception. Every time I hear that our Ossetian brothers are waiting for us, my reaction is, my relatives who live in Tsukhinvali region, they don't expect Georgians coming back, putting monuments of, of, of fallen Georgian soldiers there and saying that we finally integrated Ossetia or Tsukhinvali region to Georgia. This is the biggest possible mistake that I, have, I ever hear. And, but, but I know that there are some Georgian scholars, thanks God, who also mentioned this. And I, I, I do think that Georgians must realize Tsukhinvali region is not a place where people pray for Georgians. This is a place with a small community who suffered a lot. And like Georgians who are small in comparison with the Russians, they have much more pain in their historiography. For them, a war with the, what they call, and they call it a war with the Georgians, is is even more dramatic than for us war with the Russians. And how so? How would you compare that, uh, for example, this way that Georgians imagine Russia versus the way that the Ossetians imagine Georgia? Well, I mean, I had a small experience communicating with youth from Abkhazia, with Abkhazia, and I remember uh, the... the uh, uh, representative of this youth, he spoke about the Georgians as, as, as we were barbarians who tried to occupy Abkhazia, tried to destroy Abkhazian people. And I remember I told him that to clap you need two hands. You cannot just take and blame everything 
on Georgians. The same is here. Georgians blame everything uh, to Russia and Ossetians blame everything to Georgians. This is a perfect comparison, I think. So blaming to another person, another state, is the easiest way to find solution. But I would like to outline that we speak about reconciliation here. Reconciliation means that you recognize your own mistakes. And I don't think the Georgians, as a bigger nation, bigger society than Ossetians, uh, recognize its mistakes. And I don't think that Ossetians are ready to recognize their mistakes. I think that Ossetians still live in this trauma, in this drama. And instead of sending them these messages, let's live together, let's, f let's forget about everything that happened, we need to really reconcile. We need to really uh, recognize our mistakes, not on a demagogic level, what we hear. Like, we will probably all remember this, there was like social movement, let's live together. Uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the social movement? Yes, there was a social movement, I don't remember how it was called, but it was uh, with regard to Abkhazia, uh, and there was like a statement meaning unity. And, uh, and the Georgians used to call it, used to repeat this unity in Abkhazia and in Georgia. And then there was a really perfect article where Abkhaz wrote that this does not correlate, this doesn't work. Because in Abkhazia, unity with whom? With Georgians who intervened to Abkhazia, who used tanks to take Abkhazia by force. So this once more showed that. Uh, Mojin, there was a theory of hypothesis that uh, more time goes, less painful it will be for Georgians and Abkhazians. For Georgians, yes, it is true because Georgia is a bigger society. We are moving forward. But uh, for Abkhaz and for Ossetians, this is not something that is happening. Instead of that, we are seeing bigger distance, abyss between Abkhaz society, Ossetian society, and Georgian society. The, the, the youth in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, they didn't forget anything. They remember perfectly how many of their relatives died there, how many bombs have fallen there, have fallen there. while in Georgia the new generation is totally detached from that. They only know that there is Abkhazia, there is other regions occupied by bad Russians, by Vladimir Putin, and as soon as Vladimir Putin leaves, and as soon as Russia collapses, and I hear this so many times from Georgian high officials, that sooner or later Russia will collapse, like Soviet Union collapsed, that we will return Abkhazia and Tsinhala region. And if you remember, there was an anniversary, 10 years anniversary since the war in 2018, and, uh, and, and TV shows were just fascinating in misunderstanding the situation because I heard some former soldiers arguing that sooner or later we'll go to Tsukhin Valley, put a monument for, to the fallen Georgian soldiers. And my reaction was, wait a minute, if you speak about reconciliation, it means you must reconcile. You cannot go to the city center of Tsukhin Valley put the monument for fallen Georgians 
What about the fallen Ossetians? What about the fallen Abkhaz people? What about the, those who, who felt that too? That is when I realized that unfortunately my colleague from Tbilisi State University said that I didn't expect that after 10 years the situation will be even worse. So in the past 10 years you're saying that in Georgian society the understanding of the condition and the position of the Ossetians uh, and maybe even the Abkhaz, Abkhaz as well hasn't changed and hasn't really gotten better. It, 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 it's it, not, it, not only, it not only hasn't changed, but it, it's got see, worse. It, yeah, it, it, it got worse because, because the new generation who grew up, the new generation grew up on demagogic and on populist statements. If you, on, on the statement that my country is occupied by Russia, we all understand this. Obviously, Russia has occupied 20% of Georgia. It recognized this 20%. Okay, but I wrote for OEC Media an article that this is not the land without people, like it was in, you know, in Palestine, the people without land and, people, and land without people. There, there are people on that land. And when you say that the, the Russia occupied 20%, it didn't occupy the desert. Well, the, the, there are people in Palestinian land too. Yes. There, there are people there. Yes. There were people there. That, that was very interesting. My, my lecturer will always say that the, the biggest problem with this uh, assumption, the people without land and land without people, that there were already people there. Of course. Palestinians. Yes. So the same is here. Right. So Georgians are trying to repeat this formula saying that the land without people and people without land and speak about the refugees. What, yeah, what I noticed is that there is a real desire to erase the human beings and the human element. And, they, and on top of that, any kind of um, agency that Abkhazian people or Ossetian people would have, number one. And then number two, there is a mythology about the inability for Georgians and Abkhaz or Georgians and Ossetians to live together in a way, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's this attempt to say that either they're not really um, Abkhaz or Ossetians, they're actually Georgians, or there's an idea that says, you know, these people, much like, you know, Aziris or even Armenians sometimes, are so different that there's no possible way we can live together. I, I, I can agree with the first point, definitely, that uh, there is attempt to show, as, as we argued previously, that there is no one there. No? So, uh, there is a military base put by Russians, and that's all. And that those people who are there, they are not important. They are unimportant. And I would like to go back to my words, what I said. We have a Ministry of Reconciliation. If we do argue that people who are there are in unimportant, and that these people, in comparison with the refugees we have, and we have 300,000 refugees in Georgia from Abkhazia, if they are unimportant, then with whom do we reconcile? I think this is the biggest question that we should ask ourselves. 
As I said, to clap you need two hands. If you recognize that there is another hand, we need to recognize that there are people we need to reconcile. And about the, the second point that you mentioned, I think, I think that uh, at some point the, the uh, accent on Russia is so strong that Georgians forget that it's not Russians there. There are Ossetians also. We speak about 10,000 Ossetians living in Tsikhnvali region. Yes, of course, we have a military base where there can be also 10,000 Russian soldiers, but what about another 10,000 Ossetians there? What about Abkhazians who are in Abkhazia? And what I frequently hear uh, is that there are also Armenians, Russians are buying, buying lands, and okay, let's imagine that in Abkhazia we have minority of Abkhazians. If I can understand this really quick, what you're saying is that in Georgia, the focus, the hyper-focus on Russia as the threat that is occupying Georgia, it wants to destroy Georgia, this idea basically prevents Georgian political society from being able to understand the most important thing in the question about Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which is the fact that in these two places there are actually people, Abkhaz and Ossetians. 100% right. You know, there was a, there is a very prominent German uh, politician, Dieter Boden, probably you know him. He was working with on Abkhazia. And I remember he, he was dissatisfied with what happened to Pata Zakareshvili, the former Minister of Reconciliation. Why he was fired? Why Pata Zakareshvili was fired? You should ask yourself. Because his approach was, let's speak with these people. Not with the Russia, not with the Geneva coordination format. Let's speak with Abkhaz people. Let's speak with Ossetian people. Not with the Vladimir Putin, not with the Shoigu or Ivanov. Let's speak with these people. Let's have some platform without Americans, without Europeans, where we can directly speak with the peasants and ask simple questions like, why, why can't we live together? What are the obstacles? And Patrick Zakharashvili was dismissed because of that. Because Georgian political leads, they concentrated, absolutely focused on one simple issue. Russia is occupant. We all understand that. And Dieter Boden, I remember, why I remember Dieter Boden, he said, if someone expects that at some point Russians simply leave and then Georgians will come to Abkhazia and hug Abkhazian friends, this is the biggest mistake that I can ever imagine. You mentioned uh, a number of times that the process of reconciliation with Ossetians and Abkhaz um, has gotten worse. And uh, we just discussed how the Russian question has played this huge role in that. But also the other point, and this pertains to the article that you recently wrote about the European Union and Georgia's history 
or non-history of being a part of Europe. Uh, I'm curious how the role of Western funds, nonprofits, grants, and a political dependence on the promise of European integration or Atlantic integration, you know, joining NATO, uh, what role this plays in preventing the ability for Georgian society to reconcile with South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And I bring this up because the way I see it is that the obsession with Russia is fueled in part by this idea that there is the European Union in the West and there is Russia and they are in a historical uh, post, you know, cold, post-Cold War, post-Soviet tension, geopolitical tension, political tension, and that Georgia's role is to choose between the East and the West. And as we know that this is a, not true and that this is a, uh, a very, it's a much more complicated dynamic. But I want to, but what's interesting is that the European Union giving so much money to these reconciliation efforts, you know, making demands of the Georgian state in the reforms that it will introduce um, in order to get funding or get support, yet at the same time is politically reinforcing the thing that actually makes reconciliation impossible. And so I'm curious, you know, what do you think about that? Do you think that that's, uh, you know, are there, what does the role of the European Union and the United States mean for reconciliation on the Abkhaz and the Ossetian? You know, I will bring the formula which we use when it comes to the Kremlin, to the Moscow. Uh, the Kremlin has a few towers. What it usually means that the decision is not being uh, made only in one place, only by Vladimir Putin. Maybe he is the chief commander, but still there are different sources of information, different towers, different interest groups which affect the decision-making process. So when we speak about America and EU, I think that uh, they both have different towers. So definitely there's a conservative group like McCain Institute who who probably say that you should either decide you are with us, with the US, with the West, or you are with Russia, and maybe they have some strict demands. And maybe they are fed because definitely when they give grants, scholarships, uh, you, are, you have obligation to sign the document and say that, yes, I do share your values, yes, I do follow the rules, yes, I do accept the term that you put in. But at the same time, and I didn't mention it, when I started participating in Russian-Georgian dialogue since 2015, it was actually financed by the British embassy, embassy in Tbilisi. So it was the British embassy in Tbilisi supporting Georgian young scholars to meet Russian fellow colleagues. And I remember we had a perfect visit in Moscow and in Grozny in Chechen Republic for the first time since the, the Second Chechen War, the Georgian delegation visited Chechnya. It was a unique case. So what I want to say here is, saying is that uh, definitely there are powers in US and in EU who would like to force Georgia to make this 
how to say, solid uh, decision and to, to separate Georgia from Russia. But in the same time, I think that majority of European, our colleagues, grants and scholarship, their goal is not to push Georgia away from Russia, but to make uh, Georgia Europeanized, as we call it, to make Georgia European. But they do not demand from Georgians to become fanatics of this European path. And why I call fan fanatics, because when you meet people who are working on European organizations, on American organizations, they speak that they were fanatics of these organizations, not able to, to, to go beyond the terms and uh, the narratives that they have there. And this is definitely complicates life. For example, I know there was a case when uh, representatives from, from separatist regions or from Russia met Georgian officials. They wanted to speak Russian and the reaction was, we do not speak Russian, Russia is the occupant. And, uh, and we refuse to speak Russian. If you re refuse to speak Russian, the question here is, how are you going to talk with the Abkhaz and the Ossetians? You do not know Ab you do not know Abkhaz language, you do not possess Ossetian language. How are you going to speak? What is your main language of communication? I think this is very important to ask yourself. When we speak uh, about this just an example, uh, European integration and uh, visa waiver issue, and we try to attract people from Abkhazia and Ossetia, yes, but for them, their main uh, center of attraction is the Russian-speaking world and not English-speaking world. And this is very important to understand. You're somebody who is critical of these dominant narratives in Georgian academia. And one of them in particular uh, is this question of, you know, the Europeanness of Georgia. There has been a lot of uh, academic incentive to justify the inherent Europeanness of Georgia. And as we know, uh, there is a historiographic tradition where Georgia's Europeanness has been long discussed. But the other side of it is that it's always been a question about whether or not this is true. If it is true, what does it mean? Right? There's a difference between, say, you know, aristocratic 19th century uh, Georgian nobility and social democrats, and then in their expressions of what Europeanness and the EU, or Europeanness, excuse me, in Europe, Europe mean. And so, what do you, as a scholar in Georgia, who tries to complicate some of these? very embedded and entrenched narratives. What, how do you approach this problem? Do you come across any pushback or criticism for the types of ideas that you talk about? And what are some ideas maybe that you have that uh, push back against some of these dominant narratives in Jordan? Well, first of all, uh 
when I criticize the idea of Europeans, I do not criticize it meaning that Georgians are not Europeans. I mean, nowadays, I think that Georgia is a classical Eastern European country. I think that Georgia is an Eastern European country because Georgia finally started thinking about the Europe in general. So what I mean here that previously, before 2012, 2020, 2021, everything that used to come from Europe was accepted here as sacred, as a something that we cannot debate. Nowadays, thanks to put elites in Georgia, we can finally debate issues. And I think this is something that transforms Georgia from being post-Soviet country to Eastern European country. We started criticizing Europe, finally. We started questioning ourselves, is Europe Europe? Is Georgia Europe? And if it is Europe, how far we can go in becoming European? That's very interesting, especially when it comes to LGBTQI pride, probably that raise some tremendous issues. How Georgia is going to be European if Georgia is not ready to get, to accept some uh, values that is entrenched and embedded in European Union. This is the first issue. The second issue that I always ask myself, if Georgia is a European country, and you probably know that some Georgians argue, and Salome Zurabishvili, uh, the current president of Georgia said that Georgia is one of the oldest European countries. I ask myself, but where was the Europe by that time? And if Georgia is the oldest European country, then please uh, show me where Georgia is mentioned in European historiography. Just some 10, 15 years ago, Georgia actually was put to Asian countries, not to Eastern European countries, not to Europe at all. And finally, what I usually criticize highly is that if Georgia is not the oldest European country, and I do think that Georgia is not the oldest European country, when was the time when Georgia started becoming the European country? And what do you mean saying European? I think this is a very interesting question. That there's, a, that there's a construction of what European means, right? There's a yeah. political basis. European is not a trans-historical category. Well, look, we, if, we speak, if we speak about liberal values, liberal democracy, if we speak about uh, all these issues that we have countries with, that have the same but they are not European countries. If we speak about uh, uh, European future for Georgia, we are still not European country because we are not members of the European Union. So the first question I have, uh, Georgian Europeans comes from what? You mentioned the First Republic. Uh, the, the, the elites who aspired to get connection with the German in Great Britain, but these were elites. In, in my article, I mentioned that the, for, the, the, the famous formula, I am Georgian, thus I am European, said by Zurab Zhuania. This was the slogan of a very small group of people. Even nowadays, if you come out in Tbilisi and ask, are you European? People will not understand what do you mean here. And that is what I criticize in my article. Well, that's what I ask myself. 
I, I ask myself, in what way we are Europeans? When we started being European? And what does being European actually mean? What actually I hear from my friends, all my friends from EU, when they come, they say, you are not a member of European Union, but you have so many European flags. Why? And I say, I don't know actually. But there is the, uh, the general assumption that by, 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 by putting flags, we show our, our aspiration to become a member of European family. So that is my criticism. I do not criticize uh, Europeans as a, as a future for Georgia, but I, I, but I have serious questions. When, how, uh, in, what, in what kind of Europeans, of Europeans we are? And I don't have answers. Because as I said, uh, Georgian historians with help from external grants and scholarship, they do construct Georgian historiography. They do build the new blocks every day, but you cannot understand where is the beginning and where is the end of, of, of that construction. And it's not a secret for everyone in Georgia that Georgian historians, they do not study history. They construct history. What, and what, is, is, what, is the, what is the difference between studying history and constructing history? Studying history is, is, is when you are absolutely objective, more or less. I meaning that, for example, when your goal is to prove that Georgia is a European country, it means that you are constructing history. When your goal is to just look whether Georgia is a European country, that is what I mean, studying history. For example, every time we, in international relations, when we are expressing some hypothesis, then we are trying to find some materials can, that can prove or disapprove our views. If there is not enough proof, it means that we cannot prove our hypothesis and we abandon it. We are looking for other materials. The same is here. When, I hear, when, when, when a historian aims to prove, to prove by all means that Georgia is a European country, it means that it has some incentives, it has some motives. It's, it's not objective in its main goal. Because it, 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 uh, uh, the main goal here is not to study Georgia's history, but main goal is to prove that Georgia is a European country. These are two absolutely different issues, and I would like to bring one case. When I applied for my PhD, I sent a research proposal about Georgia. My German colleague wrote me back, do you think as a Georgian you are eligible to write paper about Georgia because maybe you are not objective in your considerations, in your assumptions, because you are a member of this process. Maybe you will have incentives and motives to prove something that is not there. I couldn't understand this, but now I understand. If you make research and your main goal is to find something, something that you already know, it may, it may disturb you from real findings.
you mentioned earlier that you have this term scholarly patriotism. Yes. And that's what that is, basically. Not only. Scholarly patriotism is the term that I use for the, for the post-Soviet space. It means that scholars who write, they write usually because they have grants, and they sign the document where they say that I have these obligations, I have these terms, and because every time they uh, make some assumptions, they express some views, they always think about the consequences. I had an experience, I remember, uh, during the meeting with the Russian colleagues, where we discussed the topic and expressed my view. But all of the Georgians stayed calm. And I, I, and I remember I asked, don't you share my view? They said, yes, we share, but these are Russians. And what, was we, the, what was the comment? It was about, I don't remember, about Abkhazia or, the, or about Ossetia, but uh, they said they are Russians, we are Georgians, we are citizens of Georgia, and we cannot express this view openly. I remember my comment was, but why did you come here then? As a scholar, I came here to openly discuss the issues. I'm not a diplomat. You know, it's funny because I was told by a Georgian academic that there is more academic freedom and intellectual freedom in Georgia than in Russia. Well, I will, I, I will definitely not agree with that, only because look at Russia, how big the country is, how many universities it has. Now, now look at Georgia, how small Georgia is, how many really serious scholars do you know? How many really serious institutions do you know? I would, I, would, I mean, take GIMO, Moscow State University of International Relations. You can have the communists, liberals, neoliberals, neoconservatives, pro-Putinists, anti-Putinists. Yes, nowadays the situation is worsened, generally, but you can meet the everyone. You will never, ever, ever in your life meet anyone like that in Tbilisi State University. I can't imagine anyone coming out saying that I'm communist and I'm going to teach some basics of Karl Marx at Tbilisi State University. I can't imagine myself as someone teaching, for example, at Tbilisi State University uh, some critical thinking about the Europeans of Georgian, of Georgian identity. And and, and you know, all of what you're saying, uh, you know, our project, we're investigating the Soviet past of Georgia. Yes. And what's interesting that we've come across is exactly what you're saying, is that there is an academic and intellectual pressure to not investigate the Soviet past in a complex and nuanced way. In Georgia. I think it's like persona non grata. Yeah, persona non grata, exactly. And so what you have are, for example, nonprofit organizations that quote unquote research the Soviet past. I'll say like Sovlab or yes. IDFI or IDFI. IDFI. And what they do is they create the idea that the entirety of the Soviet past can be reduced down to individual moments, I'm sorry, individual events, right? 1937, 
the Massive terror repressions. repressions, and that's it. Now, around the world, scholarship on the Soviet Union has advanced beyond that, right? Yes. In the West and in Europe and other places, uh, the Soviet Union is being engaged with even by anti-communists in a more nuanced way. And uh, what's interesting to me is that this is, um, there's an inability, and so what we've come across is that there is a political pressure, an academic pressure, and a scholarly pressure not to investigate it, but then when you talk to normal Georgians, older people, almost all of them will tell you that things were better in the Soviet Union, daily life was good, uh, you know, ethnic, there was, of course, some problems, but things, you know, worked a little bit. Yes, of course, you know, um, nothing, you know, there were things that, uh, uh, um, you know, there were ups and downs, there was life, you know? and. That distance between how normal Georgians who have not seen their conditions improve in the Soviet period versus how the actual um, scholarship is being basically, uh, I would say in Georgia, repressed, uh, you know, quieted down, suffocated. I would say blocked. Blocked, yeah, blocked. And the reason is, is because it's a very simple thing, is that it seems to me that one of the main reasons is that Georgians um, don't want to accept how good the Soviet Union was for them, their privileged position in the Soviet Union, and the fact that they were central in building the whole thing. Right? Georgians were more Soviet than the Soviet Union in some ways. And so what to what but if one was to investigate the Soviet Union from the Georgian perspective on its own terms, you would then have to accept the fact that th there is no distance between Georgia and the Soviet Union. Soviet Union is not external. It's not Russia. It's actually Georgia. It's, Georgia is as much Soviet as Russia is, you see? Yes. And, and that, it's been shocking to me how historians here um, don't want to really accept this but instead what you have are western funded ngos who do things like we are going to you know talk about the repressions 1937 only or we are going to um, use the archives the party archives for example um, near Ahmeteli theater yes. that they want to use the, uh, those archives for what not nuanced historical research but to help the victim the families who were victims of repression get money from the state and that's fine, but it doesn't do justice to this very multi-layered dynamic story. And also, last thing I'll say, is the development that happened. Right. On a non-political, if we just talk about e economics, right, the development that happened in Georgia during the Soviet period, industrialization, economic development, um, integration with the surrounding republics, right? integration with the Soviet markets, and then even more, people don't want to talk about this, 
the economic reforms undertaken by Shevardnadze, which were so good in Georgia that they then spread them throughout the rest of the Soviet Union, right? Georgia was an experiment within the Soviet system to build efficiency within the, within the industry and in the 70s. I think you are very right in saying that, well, just a few days ago I had a meeting with my Russian colleague who said that uh, he had interviews with Georgian scholars and Georgian scholars said that we applied to Shota Rustaveli Foundation, this is a leading Shota Foundation in Georgia, and we said, can we investigate Russian-Georgian relations? Can we investigate Russian-Soviet-Georgian relations? They said no. So simply saying... Wait, wait, what do you mean they said no? So, I mean, you probably know that before you apply to any grant, you can have some unofficial communication and find out what are the terms, what are the topics that you can uh, investigate. And my Russian colleagues, and I knew that before this discussion, he said that my Lusua interview, they said that you can apply to Shotarustavel Foundation and say that I'm going to research like German Empire and Georgian relations. I can uh, research uh, Turkish-Georgian relations, but as soon as I said that I would like to investigate Georgian Soviet Union, not massive repressions or something that is attached to a repression, you get uh, probably this is a bad topic. And you are not being financed. I remember in 2014 when I published my book, Russia 1991-2008, in Georgian, I called to Soros Foundation and said that I wrote a book, can I publish it? And they asked me, what's all about? I said, it's about Russia and the Georgia. They said, well, Russia is not actual now. It's not the topic that we should research. It was in 2014 during the Crimea period. Just think about this. Uh, Georgian academia is not free. It's unfree. There are universities, maybe private, where you can have definitely some scholars with different standpoints, but when you go to the leading Georgian institutions like the State University, the State University, you won't be able to find any more or less normal subject on Soviet history. Probably the only exception is Timothy Blowell who teaches Soviet history at Ilya State University, but the accent is always about repressions, and it actually works. If you ask a young generation what you know about Soviet Union, they will say massive repressions. But as you mentioned, well, what about the old generation? If the Soviet Union was all about massive repressions, then why so many old, rep old generation members say that Soviet Union was so good? I am sure my, my grandfather was repressed in 1930s, if I am not mistaken. But still, even my father used to say that during Soviet Union, he was not a communist, he was anti-communist, but he used to say that there were plenty good stuff happening in Soviet Union. What kinds of things does he talk about? Well, about education, about stability, about income. That, I mean, uh, he gone through the 90s, he gone through so many, like, uh, disasters, hunger, we lived without lighting, without heating in Tbilisi in the 90s. So he spoke about all these issues, about education, that uh, Soviet education was very firm and solid. Mm -hmm. 
school education, higher education, yes, there was corruption. No one, I mean, that is when you said what is the difference between uh, researching stuff and between, uh, between uh, trying to prove something. When you research stuff, you find that there were abusers, there were victims, and there was a Soviet Union, and there was a Georgian Soviet Union. And Georgia was pretty successful in Soviet Union. But because your goal is to say that Soviet Union was bad, you do not put this good stuff somewhere close to the in the book. You put it behind. So initially you start with all negative, 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 and then you mention somewhere in the bottom the positive sides of Soviet Union. But as you well mentioned, Soviet Union was not something apart from Georgia. Georgia was an inherited part of Soviet Union, and we received a lot from Soviet Union. And even nowadays, if you go outside, and for example, you speak about Green Belt, or about the, about the way the buildings are built in Georgia now, they always compare it with Soviet Union, not with the Russian Empire. Not with David Machinebel as a builder, with Soviet Union all the time. So the question is always I ask myself when it comes to Georgian Europeans too, if the Soviet Union was so bad, why then do we compare so many stuff with Soviet Union? So studying Soviet Union doesn't mean studying how bad Soviet Union was. Yeah, it seems that and sorry, one 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 more sure, thing sure. that I would like to add here that uh, uh, in, in, I remember one more thing in Georgia when I said when I went to the State University, I said that I would like have uh, one small room and to make an institution that will make research on Georgian-Russian relations. And I remember reaction was like, "Why do you need this? We all know what is the situation. Learn Georgian-Canadian relations. Learn Georgian-Turkish relations." I said I don't need Georgian-Turkish relations because I would like to learn Georgian-Russian relations. We all and, and I got refusal. So generally saying, I can say nowadays that uh, Russian studies in Georgia is, does not exist. Soviet studies, I mean the same Soviet lab, Soviet research laboratory, it does some stuff. But even here, political incentives are so strong that you cannot differentiate between real, serious research and politically motivated research. And, and, and as I mentioned in our podcast, you should always ask yourself how, ethic, how ethical it is for you to participate in this research. If, you, if your grandfather was like murdered, assassinated by Soviets, can you research this time frame? Probably not. Especially if in your family you have a strong memory about this catastrophe. You know, um, that brings up another subject, which is the question of memory. Um, it seems that often when people are talking about memory, right, they talk about some kind of their social memory, their sites of memory, there are places, maybe there's um, statues, 
things that elicit memory in a way. But very often, but not very often, do people want to talk about the politics um, of memory in the way that they are politically constructed, politically rooted. For example, in the European Union, as the post-communist states started getting incorporated into the European Union, right, you got things like the 2008 Prague Declaration, which stated that this Holocaust, Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union, and Stalinism are the same. And they started using anti-communism and an anti-Soviet position uh, as a basis for building a European identity, a European community. So then, you know, the Baltic states, Poland, start to use an anti-Soviet sentiment to nation build. And what was interesting in Georgia, what I noticed is that they try and copy the ways that the Baltic states and Poland and Western Ukraine try to structure an identity rooted in an anti-Sovietism. But the most important thing for Georgia was that it was actually being used at a time to under Saakashvili especially, those started a little bit under Shevardnadze, you could say, or maybe initiated under Gamsakhordia. There's a debate we could have. But in, in particular under um, uh, Saakashvili, uh, the nation is being built in a new way. And the way that that nation is being built is to say, we are the most anti-Soviet state that exists. We are the most Western. We are going to basically become a political colony of the United States. We are going to structure this new national identity of Georgia as being not only authentically European, as we've been discussing, but the most authentically anti-Soviet. But at the same time, it was done in such an extreme way, I think, because of the fact that things were so good here. That the, that the state wasn't just trying to be radically Western, the state was also trying to be radically, politically anti-Soviet as a basis of which it could build up and try to structure this uh, capitalist economy, uh, unify the nation, and nation build. But, but, the, but the one thing that I think the important point, though, is that it's not because Georgia was oppressed in the Soviet Union, you see? It's actually the opposite. It's not because Georgia was a colony of the Soviet Union. It's actually because it's the opposite. It's because Georgia was so important, strong, powerful, and benefited, famous within the Soviet Union, structuring Soviet culture, that that the, the, the politicians, the elites, nation builders, at the time that the European Union and the West are doubling down on using this anti-Soviet memory to structure something, right? That the Georgian case says, well, we are the most authentically that, when in fact, the historical research, in my opinion, shows something quite different. Well, I think that we can all agree that Georgians are the most pro-communist during the communist regime. And I can say that we are now the most pro 
European and most anti-Russian now. I think this is what Georg Derlugan, uh, the Armenian sociologist who lives in America, probably said that we just changed the, the side of the coin. But it is the same coin. So what we have here is that Georgians, and historically I think it's proven, I don't think that we can argue opposite that Georgians were the most pro-communist communist during the Soviet regime. If you go to archives, you can find that before the 9th of April 1989, Georgians were highly communist. And at the same time, what happened next, that they turned to the highly pro-European. What means that we didn't learn anything by the end of the day. Because if we learned our lessons, we could probably realize that being European it doesn't mean to be a fanatic. Right, and you know, the, 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 the other thing, just to add, is that it seems like in Georgia also, very often, all despite this good experience of the Soviet Union, that all negative things in the society are seen as a vestige or a result of the Soviet past. What, what, what can else actually Georgian politicians say? Well, for, let, let me first of all finish with the uh, Poland example. I said this before, I think that we're going to the Polonization process. What does that mean? Polonization is like Polonization from Russian. It's like uh, doing the same stuff that happened in Poland. So you probably know that in Poland, they, as you said, compared like Nazi Germany with Soviet Union, Holocaust, yes, 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 yes. So what we are trying to do, we are trying to copy Poland. I said that, look, we should copy Eastern European countries, Baltic states, Poland, and Georgia is like Poland was repressed, oppressed, uh, occupied, but this is false claim. I mean, my, my German colleague said that uh, Soviet Union was probably supranational entity, not empire. So as, and as a supranational entity in Soviet Union, Georgians lived really, really well. But as you said perfectly, uh, people who are trying to generally emphasize that everything bad comes from Soviet Union, they, they try to say that even good stuff that Georgians had had because Soviet Union was bad. What do you mean? What, what I mean, for example, uh, for example, Georgian economic growth. They say it, 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 it is because somewhere there, like slave or labor was used. So th that is the concept. I, I mean, even in good stuff, where you can definitely say that, well, Georgia benefited from Soviet Union, they're trying to find some excuse why Georgia lived well. Why Georgia lived well in the from an economic standpoint? Because there was a high corruption, Georgians really knew how to corrupt money, because slavery, labor was used, and so on and so forth. And you uh, said about the... Um, when, when, when you write the issue of Poland, I, ca I cannot just avoid this topic. During Mikhail Saakashvili, there was a term called Charetschilebi. Maybe you know it. It, called, it means flashed. It means when you flashed to the toilet. Sorry for this uh, comparison. But 
Charitz Chilev, it means he, he came and he said that everyone who was born in the Soviet Union, everyone who, who was more or less attached to the Soviet Union, uh, uh, has Soviet mentality. So we need to flesh these people, uh, get avoid from these people. And the, he called them Charitz Chilev, fleshed generation. And this was, I think, uh, an attempt to repeat the, the Polish model. Because you probably know that a few years ago, in Poland, they fired everyone who had the... Illustration. Yeah, yes, illustration process. They fired everyone who had some connections with Mgimo, with Russia, with the Russian or Soviet past. But what is interesting, in Georgia, they would like to repeat the same, but they can't. Because if they repeat, those people who are going to do this will be flesh too. <laughs> Because yeah. their ancestors, their predecessors, they belong to Soviet legacy too. Yes. That is the all the anti all the anti-Soviet people come from yes. Soviet elites. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, all anti-Soviet elites are ancestors, uh, are predecessors, products are of products of the of the communist elites. Yeah, definitely. So you cannot illustrate yourself, and that is what is very interesting here. During Saakashvili, there was also this uh, new term called New Georgian. Maybe you heard about that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in, in, while the half of the Georgian society was fleshed because they were above 35 years old, the Saakashvili's main goal, that I mentioned this in my article, was to create the New Georgian. The new generation of Georgians who would be from his standpoint, from his standpoint uh, the identity will be based on European values. And this correlates what we, st we talked about, that Europeanness, what does it mean? But the whole idea of a new Georgian failed actually, because Saakashvili made lots of mistakes and we could not find the formula for new Georgian. What is New Georgian? How should we understand that? And how it fits to the idea of Europeanness? Why do you think it failed though? It failed though because the reforms were... Uh, some reforms were very successful. Like police reform, like tax reform. But when it comes to education, it failed. Higher education system of Georgia is in pretty dramatic situation. The school education is very low. And to bring new Georgian, you need to bring new education. You need to bring new generation. And the new generation is more combination of the post-Soviet legacy and the European-minded uh, people and European-oriented people. So because of this mixture, you cannot have a new Georgian. Especially when you, when you mean what Mikhail Saakashvili meant. He wanted to totally unfree Georgians from the Soviet legacy, and by meaning unfree, he also meant the Russian language, you know? So, his main goal was to free Georgians from Soviet legacy by cutting everything that was attached to Russia, some incentives, some memories, and also Russian language. Because he thought that if you spoke Russian language, meant that you had you had attachment to the Soviet legacy and to the Soviet Russia and the Russian legacy. And rem I remember that uh, one of the former ref ministers' wife said the day when 
the last Georgian will forget Russian, it will be the day when we will get free from, from Soviet legacy. This was a way, again, to sort of separate Georgia from the Soviet legacy, yes. to say that they had nothing to do with it. It's a Russian imperial external other. Yes, to build New Georgia, New Georgia who had nothing in common with Soviet legacy, nothing in common with Russia, to build the wall. Now the other thing that I want to touch on briefly is the use of the Soviet legacy um, in service of building the economy. Uh, this is also a lesser discussed aspect, but the idea that, you know, when Bendukidze and uh, Saakashvili wrote about, you know, the radical catch-up reforms, the idea that not only are we European, but that um, free market economics, right, capitalist economy, neoliberalism, a servant of globalization is an important way for Georgia to develop, to rebuild its economy. And I always looked at this weaponization and instrumentalization of the anti-Soviet, anti-communist politics as a way to try and radically say that socialism and non-market economics are always to be associated with this Russian Soviet other. That if we, that Georgians to be free and truly authentically Georgian, they must um, embrace liberal economics. So that, that was one thing. And then the second part was to say that if you were to question um, whether or not social issues should be considered as more important than some abstract national ones, Right? then you can be associated with this you know, Russian enemy. Right? And to me, that, was, that has been one of the more disturbing aspects of the um, anti-Soviet memory politics is that as a process or a product of consolidating this Georgian nation, they also made discussion about working class issues, social issues, wages, um, you know, uh, the empowerment of working people, almost impossible within the discourse. Well, I think Kahab and Tukidze was the product of himself. I mean, you probably know that he worked in the Russian Federation for years, and it's not a secret that actually it was Vladimir Putin who gave, gave him permission to come to Georgia. So, Kaha Medokidze did what he knew, shock therapy. And what the, was the idea of shock therapy is to privatize everything as soon as possible. And as you probably said, questioning such, such stuff would have been considered as an attempt to remain in Soviet Union, remain in socialistic mindset. And this would have led you to serious problems and troubles. because. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, people started thinking that the, 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 blame, the reason why Georgia fell dramatically it was because of the Soviet Union, because of the way the Soviet Union was built, because of its socialistic way of uh, handling stuff. 
And those, the best way to get out of it, it was to make absolutely opposite, right. to prioritize it, to sell it. But it's interesting, right? Because the, the narrative now is, well, the Soviet Union was built bad. That's why we are, uh, have all these problems. Not actually the reality, which is the reason you have problems, because it collapsed. But, but, but as I said, uh, the best, if, you know, as I said, uh, like my colleague Lincoln Mitchell, for, the former professor of Columbia University, said, if you ask proper questions at proper time, you can be easily called pro-Russian. So, if you ask these questions, if you say, how can all problems come and derive from Soviet Union, that usually you are pro-Russian, because people don't have answers on that questions. How can you blame modern urbanity, for example, urban development on Soviet Union? How can you blame non-existence of Georgian economy on Soviet Union nowadays? But you still can. Because it is the easiest way to solve the issue. And, it's, and, and also, it actually obstructs the ability to ask real questions about sovereignty. Yeah. For example, if you think about what sovereignty means, right, the ability to have um, you know, autonomous control or sovereign control is a better word, of a nation, economy, the politics. Um, right now, uh, there are plenty of ways that Georgia does not have sovereignty that don't actually get interrogated because of this. Right. For example, you know, dependence on foreign grants, or for example, this obsession with foreign direct investment as a measure for how the economy is doing, or the freedom index for how the economy is doing. These kinds of questions, uh, or you know, uh, even uh, large development projects being outsourced to foreign companies. Right. So much of the Georgian economy is already not sovereign. So much of the Georgian political process is already not sovereign, but it's not sovereign in ways that don't necessarily have to do with Russia. No, of course not. And that's the, that's the part that, that, that another way that the hyper-obsession with the, the paradigm and the presence of Russia, paradigm of Russia as a way to make sense of all the political problems of the country prevents asking these critical questions. Obviously, but I think that the Georgians get used to it. I mean, I think the Georgian elites decided that uh, Georgia is a small country and the only way it can survive, it can give up its sovereignty, mm -hmm. at least partially. That's why, I mean, this obsession with NATO and the EU membership comes from. And that's why I think that uh, Georgian elites are ready to give up sovereignty partially to build, to build better Georgia as they perceive it, better Georgia. So I'm not surprised that they are ready to do it. And you probably know that uh, nowadays more and more social issues arise. Because after the 30 years of economic development, people still question. We privatized everything. We sold everything we could have sold. Where is prosperity? Why we don't live as good as we at least live during the Soviet Union? And the answer is nowhere. That's, and I think that's why I will say that I think that the Georgian elite has no economic plan. I think the Georgian political elite, they mainly use this NATO-EU membership, Russian threat, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, regions as an excuse 
not to provide real economic development plan. Yeah. How are we going to socially defend people? How are we going to set minimum wages? And so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm gonna go.